Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, hoping you had a lovely, relaxing uh, bank holiday weekend. And I want to go back to last Friday's programme because we had a couple of calls. I think we had some texts and WhatsApps in about this as well. And it was to do, I think, in the main pensioners who had received their 200 euro spring cost of living a bonus and they were all delighted with it and a number of people had earmarked that money was going to pay certain bills etc and for some when they either went to their post office or when they went to their bank it would have been to their bank I'm, I'm assuming they discovered that their weekly rent that they paid to the local authority had been taken out on the double um, and people were very annoyed about it and wondering what is going on so we straight away got on to the Department of Social Protection to find out what was the problem and they say that yes the extra cost of living bonus was paid out to the social welfare recipients that were entitled to it right across last week. They say in some cases those who receive weekly social welfare payments agree direct debits from these payments. Now it's via the household budgeting system which is operated by Impost and this is a great system. What happens is people take out a weekly direct debit, a little bit comes out of their whatever social welfare payment they have every week and then that money goes, it's typically made in lodgements to say like the credit union or it can go off electricity bill or a gas bill but it can also go towards the cost of the local authority rent. Now they say while the department paid the full €200 cost of living payment last week it's aware in some cases they say about 1% of people who have these direct debits uh, set, set up for the local authority rent. Uh, they it, it applied to the bonus payment in addition to being applied to the customer's normally weekly payment. Now, they are accepting that this was a mistake. They are now working with Ompost the local authorities and the housing associations to identify the people who have been affected. They say in the cases where the rent was deducted on the double, they're working to recover the amount deducted and they'll arrange for a refund to the affected customers. And I think that's really, certainly the listeners who contacted us last week, that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted a refund on the money that was taken out. The only kind of slight sting in the tail of this statement that we got from the Department of Social Protection late on Thursday evening 
evening. It's intended that the refunds of the rents will be made to customers no later than the end of May. So that's uh, as we head as we are in the start of May. Those people could be a month waiting to get that extra week's rent that was taken away from them. But just to let people know, if you were one of the ones who were affected, they have identified it. They do realise it was a mistake and they are working to sort it out. 0818103103. But let me stay on the topic of council tenants and people living in local authority uh, houses with the news today that the government reckon that they could add the equivalent of 28,000 homes across the country if they allow council tenants to rent a room in their house and they could earn up to €14,000 a year rent free. Now, we know at the moment we have a current rent-a-room scheme and that is whereby property owners can rent out if they have an extra bedroom in the house, they can rent it out uh, to a tenant or if it can be in their apartment as well and they can earn up to €14,000 it's not saying that they charge 14000 but that's how much they can earn and it's tax-free what they can earn every single year. Now, senior ministers have agreed at a cabinet meeting to extend that scheme now to all housing types and that is going to include people who live in local authority council houses. For the first time, a council tenant would be able to rent out a spare bedroom as increasing numbers of landlords we know are selling up and the rental market is shrinking and people are finding it incredibly difficult to rent a property. And ideally, a lot of people want to rent a property on their own. And if they can't, then they want to go into some kind of a house house share and will be willing to rent a room in a house. There are around 140,000 council houses. Now, that's all around uh, the country. And the department reckoned that anywhere between 14,000 and 28,000 are what the Department of Housing believes are under-occupied. And what they mean by that is that there are a number of empty bedrooms in a home. You could, for example, have uh, some pensioners, person living on their own, whose families at one stage, all of those bedrooms were filled when they were raising the children. But all the children have since moved out. And you could have a couple who are in a three or a four bedroomed house. You could have a single uh, person perhaps widowed, perhaps separated and now living in what was the family home with an extra two or three bedrooms with nobody in the bedrooms and would they be willing to rent out the rooms? Maybe they would and as I say they could earn up to €14,000 a year so there's a good incentive here from a financial uh, point of view and of course local authorities cannot compel any council tenants to move out or to downsize even though I certainly on this programme and even outside of this programme I was only speaking with a friend of mine who said her dad would love to downsize but can't get a property small enough in order to move out of the house that then could be could be given out of the council house to somebody raising a family. It's a three-bedroomed house and this man is living in it on his own and he'd love to move into a one-bedroomed apartment. He's been trying to engage with the council but unfortunately that those types of properties, we don't have a lot of them available. So the government now are hoping to encourage families that have extra bedrooms that are in council houses to rent them out as part of moves uh, to best use existing housing stock. And the idea here is to incentivise those who are living in those homes, those that are under 
under occupied at the moment is the is what's been used and they're asking those people to please consider taking up the rent a room scheme. Now nobody by the way before anyone jumps in on this nobody can be forced to rent out a room but they're just saying it might be something that people might consider and they also point out at the Department of Housing that a lot of those council houses are in very good locations in towns and in cities right across uh, the country and they want to let people in council houses know that they're not going to be penalised if they did decide to rent out one of those rooms and the the Department of Housing is now working with the city and the county management association to ensure the tenancy agreements between tenants and the councils to allow the tenants to rent out the rooms if they wish to do so but that tenancy arrangement between the council and the tenant is not going to be affected in any way if they opt to rent out a room and rooms being rented out in council houses or apartments would still have to be the main home of the council tenant leasing out the room so it's not a case that someone could decide well I'm going to move out of the house completely and rent it out they must still live in the house but then rent out one or more of the bedrooms social welfare recipients and medical card holders can all avail now of this rent a room scheme and it won't in any way affect their benefits and it's certainly I'm assuming as well not going to affect the amount that they pay on their rent the housing for all progress update also states that local authority tenants will now be able to assess the scheme and the changes will not require new laws and officials expect to have the necessary admin changes in place some stage during this summer so they could have it up and running and if they get the admin worked out this summer then surely by September people in local authority houses who might like to go down this route and the one thing that I thought about it with the cost of living crisis that we're living under we would often hear from people who are on a low uh, income people who are on a fixed income say solely relying on a social welfare payment saying we've no other way of making money here certainly Certainly would be a way for some of those to be able to generate extra cash up to €14,000 a year. And with the cost of living crisis at the moment, that is not to be sneezed at. So we'll we'll put it out there today. If you are living in a local authority house and you're in one of these that the Department of Housing says is underoccupied, you might have a spare bedroom or two. How would you feel? Would you consider renting out a room uh, to somebody? And I'm assuming you'd love the idea of earning the extra €14,000 a year without it in any way affecting your social welfare payment are indeed for people with medical cards it can be very important that they don't want to go over the threshold of losing their medical cards. Your thoughts uh, welcomed and is this a good scheme by the government? They're reckoning that up to 28,000 people could be housed this way. One of the listeners who contacted us actually last Friday because the double payment had gone out of their bank account, the double rent uh, payment, is back on uh, to say, hi Patricia, I don't use that budgeting scheme and my rent is paid by standing order and it came out on the double because the statement that we got from the Department of Social Protection uh, made it look like it was only people who had direct debits via the Ompost household budgeting system that was applied on the uh, double. So it looks like there was others affected as well. The only thing I can tell you is though that the government or the department are aware of it and they are now uh, working with local authorities and the Housing Association to identify the people uh, affected. And I'm assuming people will be contacted uh, but it's going to be the end of May. But if you don't get contacted, I certainly will be getting back on to the council to point out that you are one of the people that have been affected and that you are not part of the household budgeting system. 
0818-103-103. Uh, John Paul taking your calls. Hi, Patricia. I remember when I left uh, college in 2010, there was a 15% unemployment in this country. There was conversations every day on the radio saying people like me should be put out cutting the ditches and fitting potholes in order to earn our dole at the time. I think this this I think this is a great idea where people are getting council houses for probably three, four hundred euro a month versus paying two to three thousand euro on the open rental market. They should be expected to take in a renter and not ask when the house they, they and not be asked if the house is under occupied. Oh, I don't know how people would feel uh, about that, but I know what you're talking about. Certainly when we had high unemployment, we did have people saying may people even though that comes up every now and again, you'll have people who don't like the idea of paying out any kind of social welfare to people who are unemployed, saying that they should be made pay for their social welfare uh, payment and at a time when there was 15% unemployed it was very very difficult to get a job at the uh, time Hi Patricia I don't agree with elderly or people living on their own be forced to rent a room. I'm a widowed lady and my son and daughter live with me through, by the way, through no fault of their own. I like them living with me anyway as it is company but I'm losing out on the living alone allowance etc. But an elderly person who rents out a room to a stranger will be able to avail of all of these allowances. How wrong is that? I'm helping out my family and I feel like I'm being punished. Which is which is an interesting point because if your children were renting or were able to buy and you would have two spare rooms that you would be able to rent out and you would be getting your living alone allowance and you wouldn't be punished, uh, you wouldn't be uh, caught in any way. That's, that's a very valid point that you are making just because you have children who you are willingly housing because they can't afford to buy or rent themselves. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. Now, according to an exclusive story in this week's Irish Farmers Journal, Brazilian wood chips have been shipped more than 7,000 kilometres to be burned by Bordnemona at its Eden Dairy power plant. With more on this story, I'm joined by Lorcan Roach Kelly, who is the agribusiness editor at the Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Lorcan. Good morning. And thank you for taking time out to talk to us. I suppose, can you start by outlining what arrived and where? Um, I suppose, yeah, at, at the Farmers Journal, we do keep an eye on some of the Irish ports because we kind of look at, we keep an eye on fertiliser and feed imports to see what's coming in and, you know, what where prices should be. So we were rather surprised there last week or week before last when we saw this um, Japanese built ship, Japanese registered ship pull up in fines from Brazil because it's not normally a source of feed or fertiliser to Ireland. But then we were more surprised when we looked at what was in it. It was um, a wood chip carrying thing. And there was trucks lining up, and we talked to a few truck drivers we knew in the area, and they said, yeah, we're driving this stuff up to Eden Dairy in County Offaly to the power plant there. So like, we were kind of slightly amazed. We did a lot of checking this, going, are, are we seriously importing wood from Brazil to burden Eden Dairy County Offaly? It sounded strange to us, but that's exactly what's happening. The Eden Dairy power plant was, as you know, it was a turf plant. It was a more than one plant that was fed, that was powered from turf that was cut in County Offaly. And that was banned from 2021. So they had some turf kind of piled up and they'd be burning through that. And they're switching it to now to a, what they call a biomass facility. Biomass is basically anything that'll burn that grows. They'll, they'll burn, they'll burn it there. So the idea was they'd have um, Irish, you know, I suppose, Irish wood chips and stuff like that, which um, sides the uh, byproducts of the forest you can see here, burn that, make electricity. Sounds like a great idea. But then when we start importing stuff from Africa around the world to burn, it sounds maybe like a slightly less good idea. 
I have to say when this story broke on uh, Friday, Lorcan, the amount of listeners that were contacting us saying, is it April Fool's Day? Is this story <laughs> actually uh, f- uh, uh, f- for real? That power plant in Eden Derry, what is the, what is the long term plan for that plant? The long term plan for this plant is more of what we're seeing at the moment. And um, the, the plant was originally like a part of a peat burning plant, but now it's gone to biomass. So they have put in a planning application in 2021 to extend the life of the plant from a license to operate from 2024 to 2030. And as part of that, they put in like an environmental impact statement. And we got a copy of that. And it says that they're going to just full, full biomass. So no peat, just all wood, woody type products, but they're going to import. They said up to one third of their total um, feedstock will come from outside Ireland. And so that's we're looking at 175,000 tonnes of imported wood chips to be burnt in this plant in Offaly. So the long term plan is to keep burning wood. Um, it would be ideal, obviously, if it was Irish wood they were burning because yeah. they would have a carbon neutral thing. But this seems to be one third of it's going to be imported from outside. And can they source the wood chips here at home? Well, <laughs> you're kicking a bit of a hornet's nest now asking that question because the, the big problem we have with wood chip in Ireland is we've had a disaster of um, forestry policy in Ireland for um, at least the last 10 years. We have this um, goal to plant 8,000 hectares of forestry every year. We haven't come near 8,000 hectares any year for the last few years. I think last year we got just over 2,000 hectares. In 2021, we had less than 2,000 hectares. So the, if if you want to build a plant that'll, that'll use Irish forestry products, this is a good to do that, but you need the forestry products coming through to do it. And because Ireland is not planting trees and the forestry policy has been a bit of a failure over a considerable length of time, there's no trees coming online anytime soon to feed this plant from what we can see. So we have to look overseas, but do we need to go as far as Brazil? <laughs> These are all questions we put to Bornemona, but they haven't um, come back other than to give us a kind of a boilerplate statement saying this is our long-term view of what, where we're going. And they've given, answered none of our questions. Like one of the big questions from an agricultural point of view we were concerned about was like, what's the phytosanitary um, risks with this? Like we're importing a lot of wood chip. It's a byproduct from, um, I think it generally seems to be eucalyptus. Again, we've no confirmation that eucalyptus plantations. Yeah. So if this stuff is, is lying in Brazil, then it might be picking up diseases or stuff. Or, like we have problems with forest and with the ash dieback and other diseases that have been imported. And this to us seems like, a, like I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it'd be nice to get the assurance that they've checked and made sure that none of this stuff is um, is at risk of that kind of stuff. So it does seem like, and we're not quite sure what, what the what the environmental logic is, or what the what the health logic is, or what the logic in any point is, other than the logic is to make electricity, and that's what the plant is supposed to do. So that's I, I ha- have where to we say, I hadn't even considered the idea that we could be importing some diseases uh, with the wood chip. That hadn't even entered my head. Or even indeed, our listeners, most of our listeners, were talking about the carbon footprint. Of all the travel, yes. well, the like, they say it's seven. Like, I think if you look at it, seven a ship traveling seven thousand kilometers across the sea is actually quite an efficient way of traveling. They're okay. moving stuff around. The the, the the inefficiency really comes in when you're doing a four hundred kilometer round trip from Foynes County Limerick to Eden Derry County Offaly with up to a thousand trucks. Like that, that's if you're doing if you do a thousand trips, that's four hundred thousand kilometers by truck. That is that is not good for the environment under any way of measuring it. I don't think. And it's a, it was a Japanese ship, you said as well. It's a Japanese ship. I think that's just okay. what a Japanese ship is owned. I think with um, ship registrations, I don't think that the, the country it's um, right. okay. necessarily <laughs> means that's where it goes to. So it was going from Japan to Brazil and then back over to Ireland. Okay, <laughs> all right. And so, so are you pushing Bordnemona for for a more detailed response, Lorcan? 
Well, we, we, we're trying. We, we think we're trying to get a few like, like look at what the phytosanitary um, certificates are because they yeah. should exist. They should be able to find out. We're trying to find out what the long term plans is. But they're, they're, from what they're saying, and they're not giving us a huge amount at the moment. From what they're saying, that it looks this looks like what their plan is. They're going to there's going to be more of this import. Maybe instead of importing into fines, they'll find a port on the east of the country to import, so they have slightly less um, road transport. But I think for a lot of people, if they look at what's happened with Bournemouth in the last few years, like the, the obviously the turf cutting controversy is front and centre for a lot of people that live in the countryside. And to see then that the yeah. turf that they were cutting to replace by wood from Brazil, I think it just, it, it, there's a lot of bad feeling out there. And this is the kind of thing that really looks like an own goal for Bournemouth. Yeah, yeah. well done for monitoring the ports. Uh, by the way, the story would never have come out otherwise. Listen, Norkin, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us. No problem. Uh, good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Lorcan Roach-Kelly, who is the Agri-Business Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal with that exclusive story, as they say, on Friday, certainly just before the close of the programme, we were getting inundated with people saying, is this for real, that Brazilian wood chips were coming 7,000 kilometres to be burnt at the board Mona's Eden Dairy Power Plant? And yes, it is true. Court today on C103. Now, earlier this year, we discussed the issue of GAA games going cash and how paying in by card only and booking your tickets in advance was having an effect on some people. North Cork Councillor Bernard Moynihan <laughs> raised the issue at a meeting of Cork County Council and he joins me again in studio this morning for an update on this story. Good morning to you, Bernard. Good morning, Patricia. And you're very welcome. I suppose just remind listeners firstly why you decided to raise this as an issue and what you were hearing from people at the time. Well, good morning, Patricia. Good morning to your listeners. Across Duhallow and across North Cork, loads of people had contacted me and said, look, they find a system of booking tickets online and on phones and all that and approaching the gates. In some places, the broadband isn't good enough to book tickets. And at the gates going into games, the broadband might break down or whatever. And older people, people I consider myself, I'm 56 now, so I even struggle with it. So people were finding it difficult and they wanted to go back to the old system or they wanted a continuation of both systems where they could approach the gate and uh, pay their money and get in to see their match. Now, what happened was I brought up following all of that and following a discussion here in County Sound, I brought a motion to Cork County Council. There's 55 councillors representing communities from Castletown Bear to Mitchellstown and from Yall to Belly Desmond. And those 55 councillors fully supported the motion that we would write to Cork County, the Cork County Board and we'd write to Croke Park to ask them to see could we introduce an element of uh, people approaching the gate and to pay with cash. And we have got no response from either of those letters. I've and it's interesting that you had the backing of all of the councillors. And I take it from that, Bernard, all of the councillors had been approached by constituents, all had similar stories. Absolutely. That you had been hearing. Across the parties, across the whole lot, uh, across party support, several people approached me in the, going that morning in the chamber saying it was a great motion it was, and it was a motion for, and, and I suppose it was a motion for the ordinary person. Loads of those people have given their lifetime to the GA. They've selected teams, they've carried guys to matches, they've been involved in lining pitches, fundraising for their local GA clubs. Women have washed the jerseys. Women have washed the jerseys, <laughs> selling lotto tickets. Yeah. It's a family day out. Sometimes, you know, I remember my late dad, he used to look forward to those matches, watch him on television on Sunday so much. But I, I also think now of a person wanting to go to a match, wanting to see see Duhalla playing or see, you know, a county championship game, especially now Cork are doing well in the hurling. I think it's I think it's it's reasonable and 
it's very reasonable, Patricia, that somebody would be able to, if they decide to go to the match, they could pay in cash on the way in. I can't see a problem with that. Like maybe in 10, maybe 20 years time, it might be completely cashless society. We're not there just yet. Yeah, I remember it was around the time that you joined us and we, we discussed this on the programme, a woman contacted us to say her elderly father, lifelong, dedicated GEA supporter, but he's getting on in years. And she said it's on the day of a match he'll decide depending on how he feels and it'll depend on the weather and, um, etc and she'll uh, bring him along so she said there's no way she can book the ticket in advance because she doesn't know how he's going to be and he likes to pay himself he likes his own uh, independence and all of that and she said it's been taken away from him she said you know it's it's a simple thing but the fact that he can't walk through a turnstile take his money out of his pocket and pay in it, and it just seems really unfair Well I, I suppose you know I, I, I googled age action Ireland there are people who look who represent elderly people in in their views, and they completely supported this idea. Independent, independent living. You don't take somebody like it's an important. Like elderly people, we cannot discount their views. We cannot just drive on and say, look, an elderly person would like to pay for the match themselves. They have their own money. They have their pension money. They have their bit of money saved. They have their money for the match on Sunday, maybe a pint afterwards, maybe meet a friend. And the most important have all of the all of that, Patricia, is the social aspect. They can talk at the weekend or talk to their friends during the week who played well, who came on, what changes were made, how Cork are doing, all that kind of stuff. You know, Pat Horgan, whoever was playing well for Cork at the time, you know, this 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 is all. There's a whole aspect of mental health, of being involved in your society. Now, we read during the week, and we're following up, uh, Patricia, the government are telling us now, get out there, there's reconnect. A gov- there's a government campaign there's aimed at older people correct. to get back out. Yeah, reconnect, reconnect, reconnect after COVID. Mm. And the whole thing is reconnect with your friends, reconnect with your community, reconnect with your activities after COVID. And here we have the GEA, uh, stopping people reconnecting with their what what reconnecting there's a whole raft of people who are really involved and really want to see cock teams playing and duhala teams playing and club teams playing and, and and they're prevented from going to matches okay and and you wrote as you say you wrote to both uh, the cork county board and you wrote to to crow park and it was a very simple uh, letter you say in it uh, the cork county council writes to crow park and the cork county board to put card machines and have one cash in entrance in place for all GA matches. Simple, one line motion, sent it off to them. It's dated the 27th of February. We're now on the 2nd of May. And are you saying zero response to both letters? Well, I suppose, Patricia, I wrote initially and I got no response, but then I took the motion to Cork County Council and our 55 councillors supported that. And our process is you know, it wasn't I wrote. It, after 55 councillors support a motion across the council, across the parties, Joe Carroll from, from Skibbereen, across Tanbury, Heron in, in Middleton, all these people supported it. And the bottom line is that mo- that that letter was then issued by Corporate Affairs and Cork County Council on behalf of the 55 councillors. And I've checked with corporate and they have got no response. Is that unusual? It's beyond belief. No, we always get a response. Like, you know, 55 councils, they're all elected by communities. People go out canvassing for them. People work hard to get them elected. Each one of those councillors represents a geographical area, like Ian Doyle and Charleville, myself and Doha. Like, the bottom line is all those people represent... We're not up there. We're not sole traders. We're sent up there by the people. Mm. 
it almost feels there's a level of arrogance to it. It's almost like they're ignoring the members of Cork County Council by not even acknowledging that yes, this is happening and we'll look into it and come back to you with even an explanation as to why they want to continue well, uh, cashless. Like, um, like While it's standard practice, if you get a letter, you respond and say, look, we're going to look into the matter and we'll come back to you. The only indication I have that they're looking into is on the front page of the Corkman last week that they, there was a, 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 an indication from Cork County Board they were looking at mechanisms to make this happen. Like all I'm, like this is very simple. Obviously, the online system. We're not going to stop technology. The online system is going to be there. Put in the card system and put a cash turnstile and let people pay by cash if they wish. And this is particularly relevant for elderly people. And it's even relevant for my age group because I, I struggle to book tickets on, on, on the phone. Well, I think the issue with the broadband we've had, to, and again, we've had listeners contact to say you're like they're running around holding their phone up in the air trying to get pick up a signal. And then as a number of listeners pointed out, those who had booked their tickets online, when they went inside to a match, it was cash for to buy the programme. So it's not that they're not dealing in cash. Not at all. It's, it's cash to buy the programme, but this is just a very simple thing to resolve. Okay, and you're I going cannot, to, are you I, g- I just cannot, you know, like, uh, I mean, I don't know why why they just cannot engage with us, number one, and, and respond to us and engage with us and try and resolve it. But certainly, I believe in 2003 or 2023, there is no reason why we can't have cash at the gates for another while anyway. Okay, all right. Are you going to rewrite to... to is, is, is that something that the council would do, get back on again? Well, and I'll say, raise it at the next council meeting. Okay. Next council meeting and I'll see why we're not getting a response and rewrite to them. It's, I have ne- I, I'm, I'm there since 2014. I've never heard us having to rewrite to, a, to an organisation that we previously wrote to, even writing to ministers as busy as they are. You'd always and get a response. We always get a response. Mm. OK, and uh, listen, while we have you in studio, um, I know you drove here to the radio station today, so you came through Ballymacquark Cross. What's the update there on well, the Well, there's great progress on Ballymacquark Cross. It's the Sorensen's engineering. I, I have to compliment them. They're doing a great job. There's very little road closure so far. A lot of work is being done internally, so which which is saving road closures. But, Patricia, I, I think I, I want to make t- I thank you, you and your listeners, for support the whole idea of Ballymacquare Cross it was it was yourself C103 and the Corkman primarily pushed this programme and this is going to be a huge uh, hopefully it will save lives in Duhalla it will make Duhalla more accessible to the to, to, such, it's such a, a dangerous junction well it was examined by the engineers and TII and was said one, one of the most dangerous junctions in the country a, yeah, yeah okay so uh, you reckon on, on track later this year you reckon it'll well, all be I'd be hoping by November great That'll be and just into the winter months as well, which which would be really important. And finally, while we have you here, I I was mentioning about the it's making the papers today that people living in council tenants uh, that they might consider renting out a a room in their house if they're under occupied. Uh, But you want to just give a mention to the grants, and I know I just I mentioned it last week. This is the grants for the vacant and the derelict houses. They're putting more money into that, aren't they? Yeah, yes, Patricia. This is a, I think it's a, a significant advance. It's a lot of inquiries across Duhalla over the weekend and the last week on it. It's seventy thousand euro 
to develop a derelict property. Okay. And up to now, you had to live, it, it had to be the, the person getting the money had to be going to live in the property. You can now develop the property and rent out the property subsequent to that, which makes it more attractive for people who might have a, a house on a farm or a house at their, their mother's house or something that's left out there, but they may have a derelict property. And 70,000, and there's also on top of that, SEAI grants of about 15,000 for windows and insulation and stuff, which brings it to about 80,000. That's good. So that's a lot of money for somebody. Now, now that's a derelict one, but the the vacant house one has also gone up, hasn't it? Yes, if you have a vacant house, it's gone from 30 to 50. So if you and again, you don't, it doesn't have to be the house you're going to live in, you could do it up to rent it out. Correct. Well, so like, you know, it is, these are all, this is significant money. I mean, if you're talking a derelict property and SEAI plus the, 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 the grant, you're talking 80,000. I know costs have increased dramatically, but still a lot of work will be done for 80,000. And, and I mean, we all know that and the government know we need to be building more houses and, and you know, the, they're doing their best and the de- developers are doing their best to build more houses. But with the existing stock we have, that, that's why these grants are so important. Well, uh, Patricia, it, it, there's, a, there's a range of experts who say the fastest way to bring houses or put, bring houses available to people to live in. Now, there's a huge demand for housing. There's a massive demand for housing, especially one-bedroom and two-bedroom properties. A huge demand for across Duhalla. But the bottom line is the fastest way to, to bring properties back into use and make them available for to, for people to live in is by uh, redeveloping derelict properties. Yeah, the because existing you, housing the stock existing housing there, stock. Yeah. And I always feel, uh, Bernard, and I'm sure you'd agree, I mean, in some of our villages and towns, there's areas where there are either vacant properties or derelict properties, it brings life back into an area, doesn't it? Absolutely. Like, you know what I mean? It, it, like across the GA, the, the GA clubs across Duhalla are sometimes are struggling for teams. We put five or six houses into Cullen, extra 15 houses into Knock Degree, 20 or 30 houses into Boherbui. That makes that makes that that school more viable. It holds a teacher in the school. It makes the community more viable, the shop and so forth. And we're talking now about, you know, about the environment and the environment is becoming more important about maintaining our rivers. We're talking about the five minute village. Boherbui is the classic example of the five minute village because you have a national school, secondary school, pharmacy, the whole lot. What we need there is housing. And there is a huge so, and the, and the other issue, Patricia, which c- comes up is that people moving from Balmacoda, Middleton, when p- a house comes up in Duhalla, in Boherby, in Cork, there are people from way down Ballycotton who are very happy to come to Boherby and live in the communities of around North Cork. So Duhalla, when class when Ballymacquirk is opened up, and the facilities we have, the GA clubs, the the community facilities. The, the, the sense of place and all that that's going to that's we really really need to and I think anybody with a derelict property now should seriously be looking at this grant mm, Absolutely okay and just a text in from Una on the GAA uh, issue can people pay with a credit card without having a booking can you simply turn up at a match will they leave you into the turnstile do they accept credit cards No without a booking No, no. no. you have to book you have to have it all You have to online. book what I'm saying is Patricia and I, to, to answer Una's question it should be tap 
online and cash. All three. All three. Give all three. All right, listen, Bernard, keep us updated on this one. In the meantime, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us in, in studio. That is um, North Cork Councillor Bernard Moynihan. Now, some commentary in uh, reacting to Councillor Bernard Moynihan and the lack of response from the GAA, both at county board level and at Coke Park level, to their request to go back to allowing people to use cash or to turn up with a card and buy your ticket and go into a uh, match. Anne-Marie in Middleton is suggesting this is for older people could they not use their social services cards to gain entry to a GAA match could there not be some link up done with that with that now deal with the issue I don't quite understand are you saying allow them in for free with the social services card uh, Marie? I don't quite understand because the social services uh, card doesn't have money on it if you're thinking the social services card could be used to take out the cost of the um entry to the match so I'm not quite sure where you're coming at with that one and uh, hi Patricia this is an email from uh, Emer uh, saying has Councillor Moynihan contacted his local GAA club for them to raise the issue at county board uh, level oh sorry that was from Neil and Gert Moore uh, via emailing uh, Cork today at c103.ie and Emer and Charleville had a similar issue I'm sure that Bernard has been on uh, to local clubs as indeed other councillors have as well it's just they got so frustrated in continuing hearing from people who were trying to go to a match and couldn't either book online, didn't have the facility to book online or wanted to pay in cash so they decided to go right the way to the top and he had the backing of all 55 members of Cork County Council and Jim said, Jim says I was at a minor girls football Munster final a few weeks ago, it was on in Mallow I had no ticket. Now he said they usually have a card machine with somebody outside selling the tickets there so Jim turned up with his card. To my amazement there was a man with a bag, had gate taking money instead. So I thought the councillor Bernard Moynihan had managed to get through what he was asking the GAA to do. But like former Cork player Ben O'Connor and trainer of the Cork under 20s team at the time, when asked about under 20 players being denied playing senior, he says, the G- do the GAA ever do the right thing? And it looks like to Jim, listening to councillor Bernard Moynihan today, if they won't even respond to the pleas from the entire all of the councillors on Cork County Council to put a cash turnstile at a table. They didn't at the gates. They didn't even respond to the letter, which I really find astounding. Even I would have thought as just out of courtesy, they'd acknowledge receipt of the letter coming officially from Cork County Council with that we are looking into it, but they didn't. Some of your commentary in on council houses and this is the government's uh, plan. They're hoping that uh, up to 28,000 homes People could be housed in 28 council houses by allowing council tenants to rent out a room in their house and the idea would be that they would be able to benefit 14000 a year uh, tax-free, similar to what's currently there for property owners who can rent out a room in their house and they can claim €14,000 in tax-free per year. They're now saying they're going to do the same for council tenants. John in Mallow says, I work and I do live in a council house. I pay my rent weekly, but our house is full, so we don't have the option of renting out a room. But if I earn earn more from my working job, then my rent will increase. So I feel this new scheme is very unfair to me. 
people with a spare room will be able to earn up to €14,000 and it won't affect their rent. While I will not be able to do any kind of overtime without it affecting my rent, it seems unfair just because I don't have a room to rent. Mareda Mallow says it might look very attractive to people, but people need to be careful. People may feel very vulnerable. And what about the utility bills? They would have to be split for older people. They would really need to check out who they're bringing into their house. It may seem like an attractive issue on paper but the reality could be very very different people need to be very careful Kieran in Clonakilty says while this may help with our current housing situation it's not fair to those who pay low rent from the council now they are going to be able to earn extra money while many of us are paying very very high mortgages we're struggling to pay that mortgage we're over the threshold to avail of a council house so we've no option but to go down the route of buying a property some people are working two jobs just with the rising cost of living. Um, this measure seems very unfair to those of us who don't have a council house. And then Jur is from Mallow, describes himself as retired on the rent room scheme. scheme. He said, I recently took in tenants under this scheme. It's an excellent scheme. Tenants and myself get on wonderfully well. We eat together, we talk together, but we still have our own privacy when we want it. I was previously living on my own and loneliness was a real issue for me. Not anymore. And the extra money means I can now travel more so for people it works when it works it works really well and it does absolutely having having somebody else in the house can be great as well when it comes to loneliness so when you get the right people in and if everybody gets on it certainly can uh, work Hi Patricia I was just thinking about that rent a room scheme and I don't think it will work for council houses because you could have partners moving in claiming to be renting a room when in fact the couple are living uh, together but they're claiming that they're not so that the benefits the other person can get all of the benefits I think this should be scrapped. Also, I think it's dangerous to have a stranger sharing with an older person. People really need to look before they leap on this particular one. Again, it looks great on paper, uh, but it mightn't work in reality. And then just some comments in on the wood chips when I was speaking with the Irish Farmers Journal at the top of the programme about the wood, the story, crazy story about wood chips being imported from Brazil uh, to be burnt at the Eden Dairy power plant that had been, used, was a peat burning plant but now is no more because we don't produce turf so guess what we go to Brazil for the wood chips instead kind of the mind boggles doesn't it John on Twitter says Australia who would not be a paragon for reducing global warming they've actually banned the burning of wood chips for energy rightly so says John cutting a tree down and planting planting 40 saplings doesn't help with climate change for the future. Michael in Castletown Bear says, what insanity is this importing wood chip from the other side of the world? There's a farmer above in County Meath, a few miles from Kells, who's got 56 acres of miscanthus and it's only used for bedding, all because he can't sell it. Successive governments have failed to assist and develop a market for miscanthus through sheer ignorance of the product, a product that could create thousands of jobs. Uh, we could become leaders in this product. For God's sake, won't somebody wake up and smell the roses? And I know Michael's been ang- banging on about that miscanthus because I did some research on it. It does look like a fantastic product, uh, but for some reason, it's just not been looked at seriously in this country. And then some texts in on board Nimona the wood chips coming from Brazil. They are clearing 
and cutting down trees in the Amazon rainforest. They're doing it to provide grassland for dairy and beef production. That beef then will supply the Irish and European market. Sure, why not sell on the wood chip to Ireland at the same time? And the Irish Farmers Journal are right to be worried about diseases that could come in with some of those wood uh, chips. So we've got wood and meat products all coming in from the other side of the world. Well done to Eamon Ryan and his associates. And Marie from Botland with a similar point says... uh, Hi Patricia, we're getting rid of our own cattle. Why? To let more cattle come in from Brazil. They need more land and in order for them to produce the cattle, they have to cut down their trees. And then we end up eating the Brazilian beef. So now it's making perfect sense. We'll eat the Brazilian beef and we might as well take their wood chips at the same time. Our government would really want a bit of a rethink on the ways of saving the environment. And that's from Marie in Butterfant. 0818 103 103. And we go from uh, saving the environment to saving water. Joe in, in Charleville uh, joins me. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Patricia. You're on about a leak. I am. I'm on about this leak. I'm on about it a couple of times now before. Have I spoken it's, to you it, before on this? You have. Yeah, go on. Remind you us. Have. About, it's just on this gavel to the Greenhall Road. Okay. It's there about a mile outside this gavel. It's there about a year and a half plus, I'd say now, and it's flowing down the road. Why in the name of God isn't someone looking at it? And it has been reported to the council? It, well, you have reported to the council and you've yeah. been on Tyler Water because they've been on TV before. Yeah, it's Irish Water, of course. Ishka Aaron is there now. But they say it's a group scheme. But it's still coming from, a, it's still coming from the council water. It's, I don't know, someone drove in there. Someone drove in there over the winter. I could see the tire tracks on it to try and, to, to try and open it up and make it a good, good league, make it better. So they'd have to come out to, to try and repair it. I know, but nothing's but been done. Now, no, John, John no. Paul tells me that when you were last on with us, this was sometime last year, we got on to Ishka Aaron, they were Irish Water then, and the response we got at the time was, we have located the leak. Oh, thanks for that. Uh, then they say, there is no public main on this section of the road, so we will sample it to rule out public supply. End of statement. Okay, we're going to have to get back on to them again to say when they sampled it uh, and ruled out. So if they're if they're saying it isn't public supply, then it's a landowner's issue. I don't. Jesus, to open aside the road, I don't think any farmer would have would have uh, water open aside the road. Yeah, or would be allowing a leak to go on that long. No, they wouldn't. No, the farmer wouldn't do that. And is it, it if it's there a year and a half? It must be doing savage damage to the road, is it? But just flowing in down by the side. Just long right in by the bank, the up bank, and going down about fifty to hundred yards down the road in in a, a little water where they, they they have dug and it goes in and it disappears. The waste of water. Actually, it's some waste of water, like in the water. I don't know. You can see there's leaks everywhere in there, Patricia. There's leaks everywhere. You see it in the dry and the dry weather after the past few days. There's water coming up through the roads. And you know what will happen now? We'll get it. Will get hopefully a little bit of good weather this summer, and we'll all be well, on with hosepipe bands and turn off pipe. your tap when you're brushing Correct. your teeth. Correct. That's okay. exactly that's what's going to happen. That's okay, we'll happen. get back onto them again and see if we can get a further update. In the meantime, thank you uh, for highlighting and it with us again. We, we have another issue there is the road. Um, I have to travel a road there from Newtown to Dromina every day. Yeah, the, the council come on there. Last October, November, I say, and they tarred it. It's about a mile and a half of a stretch. Mm. Now, the way they left the road was a disgrace. Why? Because the chips, 
came off in the tires of the cars and there's some hitting me job. And she's that way since. And she's that way all winter, like. And there, there was no lining in the road, nothing. They never lined the road. Which they that, just put they just put tar and chips down, was it? They just put tar and chips down. And yeah, was it in a bad? Was it in a bad? Was there a lot of potholes? Was it in bad condition? No, it wasn't really. No, 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 it wasn't too bad. No, but they're coming on now. I think now again at the moment they're putting in. They're working on it again, but I don't know. There's six months now for that road to be. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll put you back out to John Paul and I'll get him to take the details of that particular road and when we're on to Irish Water we might as well get on to the council and see if we can find out what's happening with that road as well. All right, Joe, yeah. listen, thanks okay. for that. Thanks. I'll put Joe back out there to you. Uh, John Paul, just to take the details of that road. 0818103103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862103103. C103 Jobs. In Chidani Island Hotel, they've got vacancies for a kitchen porter and a chef to party. Now, full-time and they are live-in positions. CVs, please, to eshepherd at inchidaniisland.com. An IT network junior system administrator is wanted in Mallow. You must have three years' experience and a third-level qualification. You can contact Vinny at 061 363318. A cable and pile erector is wanted for Cork and the General Munster area. JJ, you contacted 87 252 9418. And Cork's 96FM looking for a receptionist. It's for a 12 month maternity cover. You need to have good computer skills and the ability to act as the first point of contact for callers and guests to Broadcasting House in Cork. CVs, please, to your HR manager at 96fm.ie You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. You can go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Now, the Department of Health last year promised to fund IVF services from this year, 2023, with the then Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, saying the regional fertility hubs would be established. A public fund for IVF was first promised in 2017. And to talk about why it's so badly needed, I'm joined by North Cork mum, Sarah Magner, who has been on her own IVF uh, journey. Good morning to you, Sarah. Hi, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And and thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme. Now, I suppose firstly to point out, uh, you thankfully have two beautiful uh, children uh, who were born through IVF. Have you any idea how much all of your IVF cycles have have cost it have you kept a kind of a running total i suppose out of fear of trauma we <laughs> haven't kept an exact one you know but like tidying up roughly we've spent between 40 and 50000 on ivf treatments <laughs> and supplements and add-ons and all the other things that go around us in in the couple of years that we were we were doing it yeah, and that's probably undercalculating it if you were to sit down and, and oh, actually... Oh, it probably is. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason that you really want to speak out is because not all families will be in the position to be able to afford that. No, absolutely not. I know families who have had to stop going down the IVF route, not because emotionally or physically they're drained from it, but financially they're drained from it. They're 
means to finances, either they don't have it or they've extended all means of credit and they literally have run out of money to do IVF. And I just think in this day and age, Ireland's an outlier. Do you know, other countries across Europe, it's a standard medical treatment. Yes, there's criteria, but the thing is, the funding is meant to start in September in Ireland. And there isn't even criteria yet. And we're in May and we all know the health system doesn't work that quickly. So the likelihood of anything happening in September is limited, I would think. And it must be utterly heartbreaking for a couple who so desperately want want a child to be in this situation yeah. to say we can no longer uh, afford because we know that, you know, the, the stats are there. IVF doesn't always work the first time. No, no. It, on average, you need three cycles or three transfers for to have a healthy pregnancy. So, like, personally, I did seven transfers and I have two children. Two, yeah. So, uh, statistically, I fall into that, you know, yeah. number of times. Now, I do know people. I don't want to take away from the fact I know people who are very lucky to have their babies on the first go and maybe have a second one on the second go. But that's a rarity and the thing is people don't talk about it and I was one of those people it's easy to talk about your story after words you know but while I was going through IVF I didn't talk about it so even if we didn't have the money I wouldn't nobody would have known to help me because I wouldn't have told them that we were going through IVF it wasn't until I was pregnant with me with our first little girl that I actually told anybody that we were going down the IVF route. And when you started on that journey of IVF, had you any idea what it was going to cost? Oh, no, I was totally naive to it. And I was almost one of those people who was like, oh, well, I'll just go do IVF and have a baby and all will be fine. (laughs) Do you know? So there was a total. And a friend of mine who's a GP one day happened to say, he was like, Sarah, you know, on average, it takes three goes. I think he was trying to manage my expectations. Maybe he could see that I was getting a bit carried away with this was the answer to our problems. Yeah. Where he was like, maybe you need to think about, you know, that it it's not. And I suppose once you start, you realize all the problems and the issues. And uh, like, it's a business because there is no option but to do IVF through a private clinic in Ireland. And many people go abroad just purely for cost reasons. You know, sometimes they want a different medical opinion, but a lot of people go abroad for the cost because it's cheaper. And it's and it's that need and want for a baby. Yeah, and people go to, like, I know people who have gone to extraordinary financial lengths, extraordinary physical lengths, you know, to go through the... IVF process and it's not easy it's easy for me to look back with rose tinted glasses having two children you know but at the time like you're medicated I would say for the best part of the last four years I've been medicated five years I've been medicated in some way to do with IVF or I've been pregnant and it's an emotional and a physical roller coaster on your body oh absolutely like you're pumping your body full of 
hormones and drugs and like to I suppose to maybe rationalize how the volume of hormones you're taking you're taking often five to six times the dose of what a woman would take if they were on HRT so you're you're talking like and then you're supposed to go to work and carry on and often you're covering up that you're doing IVF so you don't have bad days you know because you you have no way of explaining your bad day if you haven't I suppose confided shared with people yeah and then, as as you say, you know, you you could you did seven transfers of which, th- you know, thankfully you've, you've two beautiful uh, children, but that meant there was five that didn't work. Is that absolutely yeah. devastating? I suppose I'm very much a what are we going to do next sort of person. So, I, yes, but the minute I had a failure, I was like, okay when are we doing the next round COVID happened in the middle of it um, so things changed because well first there was a delay then there was a change in protocols because of medications certain medications were seen as not suitable to take during the pandemic so things changed like that um, I unluckily had a miscarriage in that space so I ended up in CUMH which was I can't fault the care, but I was there by myself because it was during yeah. COVID and you weren't allowed to bring in your partners. I suppose the lucky thing for me, if you can be lucky in that, is the IVF clinic was able to tell me I was having a miscarriage and they left my husband come in when they told me. But not every woman has, has that. was in that yeah. position. Yeah. And I was really lucky. I think i just been with him so long. I was like a staff member as opposed to, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, so I, it was the same nurse I'd yeah. seen for years. And I think she took pity on me. She was like, OK, your husband can come in. <laughs> and and when I mentioned in the introduction that, uh, and I, I had to go back and remind myself, when did we first start talking about a publicly funded IVF? And I was taken aback to discover it was a 2017. So when you started on the journey, did you at some stage think, well, surely I'll get a publicly funded one at some stage? Maybe that did because it was actually 2017 when we started. Yeah. So it was it was quite a number of years ago now. And I was under the magic 40 substantially at that stage. I was I can remember when I went to the clinic, they told me I was relatively young, even though I was 37. But, you know, in the overall picture, I should have hit it. I lived in the UK for years and I w- would have hit the criteria in the UK to have publicly funded IVF when I started. But in Ireland, there was no option for that. And you're saying like with them still talking, you know, and I know Stephen Donnelly is saying it will be available from September. You're saying we still don't know what the criteria are. So there can be women and couples listening now hoping that they will qualify and then they may not they may not qualify. No. So there are people putting off IVF. So maybe they have the funding, but it's scarce or, you know, it's expensive. So they're saying, well, there'll be funding by the end of the year. So we'll just put it off a few months. You we don't know what the age criteria, what the medical criteria, you know, will you have to have tried IUIs or different types of maybe fertility treatments, medicated cycles in advance of doing it? No one knows. And to Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The best of my understanding, but I might be wrong in it, the public system is going to be done through the private clinics initially because okay. there isn't a public system. But I believe the private clinics haven't been contacted yet. Oh, goodness me. So, and, 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 and the and other if... side is there's such a waiting list even to do it privately with the expense of it. If the public system goes into the private system, does that mean that people who are willing to pay will have their treatments pushed back months or years because the public system will take priority. Mm. Do you know, there's so many unknowns that it's a minefield at the moment. And if you look, I mean, you mentioned that you were in the UK. So the UK, uh, their eligibility is based, one of the criteria is age, is it? One, yes. And it is a postcode lottery there. Every NHS trust has different criteria, but broadly speaking, if you're under 40 and have no children, you'll qualify. And that's very broadly speaking. And depending on the trust, some trusts will only give you one. Some trusts will give you three rounds of IVF before it. And, and, and again, that's all the detail that we've no idea what, what, no what idea. we're looking at. No. Uh, and at least you could plan if you knew, well, we have one try on, you know, publicly funded, even... And people go, oh, but people go privately and they have health insurance. Most health insurance companies maybe give a thousand euros per lifetime to IVF. Oh, and is it still, is it about 5,000 a transfer? Have I, that's Roughly figure five yeah. or 6,000 yeah. per transfer. Now, I suppose you go to egg collection and depending on how many embryos comes out of that, if you're lucky enough to have a lot of embryos, then each transfer would be maybe 1500 per transfer unless you have to go back to egg collection but it depends on how well someone would respond so some people might only get one embryo to transfer so they're starting from scratch with Mm. every with every transfer so it is it's an unknown it's an unknown science you know I know I know and then there'll be tests and blood tests that need to be done and there'll be a charge on all of those every time I take it yeah, and like, luckily, my GP was brilliant and 
anything I asked her to do that she could have done through the public system for I know I know I'm a private patient of hers but yeah you know she she facilitated because well a blood test through my GP would be 30 or 40 euros sometimes through the clinics it was 150 for the yeah. same test yeah 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 and they're probably going to the very same clinic uh, as well uh, and what age are your two children Sarah uh, Maeve is four and Irla is 10 months ah gorgeous Gorgeous, gorgeous ages. And your message to couples on that IVF journey, I'm always conscious when I do interviews like this, that there are people distraught listening, um, wishing that they were in your situation, that they were at the other uh, other side of it. But what, what is your message to couples on that IVF uh, journey? I suppose anyone I talk, because everyone's circumstances are different. There's no two people who go down the IVF road say oh that's like what happened to me because everything there's so many variables that but I always thought when I was doing IVF that if I had a crystal ball and someone could say you have to do 14 transfers but at the end of it you're going to have a child you go okay I'll put up with all of this for the outcome but the problem is you don't know and for some people unfortunately there is no happy ending there is no positive outcome yeah I, I have a family member who falls into that category and it was just utterly heartbreaking uh, to watch them what they went through and then and to realize, you know, on come the out other side hand, of nothing I'm I'm grateful that science has advanced yeah. to the level that it has because if this was when I was born it wouldn't be a possibility for me to have children you know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Science is, is wonderful. Is wonderful. Yeah. But so it, you're you're blessed and you're cursed at the same time. I know, time. but it should be in reach for everyone. It should it shouldn't come down to how much money you yes, earn and, and how much you can get and together. That's why I'm speaking out well now done. because I think it's really unfair that I had the privilege to afford IVF, but there are so many people who would make wonderful parents, and sometimes they have good jobs, but they've just been so much they've had to. There is a line where people have to draw where they say enough is enough financially. Okay, and I know you're um, a member of the the National uh, Infertility Support and Information Group and and they are also calling for this package to be published uh, and at least let people know what the criteria is going to be. Sarah, I've... Yeah, go on. I must say, NISEG, they offered, because when I started IVF, I didn't know anyone else. And I suppose I didn't go to family and friends and I got such support. And just to mention quickly, they have a support meeting in Cork on the 12th of May, the next one. So maybe if there are people listening who feel that they're the only person on this journey, that they could reach out and you know they get support in that way well done well done listen uh, thanks a million I've really enjoyed our uh, chat and thank you for taking time no out problem. to talk to us okay. good thank morning to you bye 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 that is uh, North Cork mum uh, Sarah Magner on her IVF journey now a couple of weeks ago RTE launched a new wildlife documentary series in three parts called Ireland's Wild Islands the series explores the spectacular wildlife wonders of Ireland's Atlantic Islands and the final part next Sunday evening. We'll see the presenter Owen Warner head into his home waters off West Cork and I'm delighted to say that Owen Warner takes time out to join us uh, today. Good morning to you Owen. Good morning Patricia. Thank you for having me. Oh well and can I start by saying fantastic series. Everyone who I've been talking to 
who has watched it has all said the same thing. It just truly is wonderful. So I was, uh, wasn't was surprised to see and read. It was three years in the making. Talk to me about, about how this series came together. Um, well, it, it took three years to make it because, as you probably saw from the lovely footage of the beautiful sunsets and sunrises, you'd need three years to get that many <laughs> in the west coast of Ireland. But uh, yeah, so no, we, we were, I, I've always been enchanted about uh, with the islands ever since growing up in, in, in Bantry Bay, uh, we'd go out, out to them. They always feel like a world apart. Um, and uh, so the, the makers of the of the documentary Crossing the Line, who were based in Westport, um, they it said, you know, let's make a documentary about these wild places because there's so few wild places really any, anywhere now um, but the islands still have have some some amazing wildlife and let's you know go on a journey and show Irish people what we have on our doorstep and how, what we should be very proud of because it's it's so beautiful and so we, we started the um, the trip in, in 2019 in September and um, we didn't think it would take three years but, but it mm. did uh, and Covid obviously didn't help either um, but it, it was the most amazing journey and even the most amazing personal adventure for me, like to be involved in it and, and to, to visit some of these places. Because like uh, you really feel very privileged when you're out in some of these islands in the middle of wintertime because so few people get to experience what, what I experienced. And that's why it's, it's so special to be able to share that with, with you know, the Irish uh, public. And just for, for, and by the way, for the, the first two episodes are available on, on the player. Uh, just for those who haven't seen it, just remind listeners where you start the journey and how far you've come in the last two weeks. <laughs> just. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. So we started up in, in Rathlin, off the northeast coast of, of Ireland. And then we worked down along the coast of Donegal. And then so that was pretty much the, the first episode down to North Mayo. And then last week's episode, we went from North Mayo down through uh, Galway, the Connemara coast, and down to off, just off the Clare coast. And so next week, then, we'll be heading uh, from uh, kind of along West Kerry, uh, down past West Cork, down to Corrigan or to, um, to the Fastnet is where we finished the okay, journey. OK, so the, the final one, as I say, brings you into home, wa- home waters. Anything in particular that you're looking forward to showing us next Sunday? Um, well, I just want to show the rest of the world West Cork and Kerry like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, there's some amazing stuff coming up. Um, we're starting the Maharese and we'll be looking at uh, Arctic terns, uh, which are, are the, the greatest migrators in the world. So they travel like 70,000 kilometers a year down to the Antarctic Peninsula and back up again. But they make their, you know, they make their nests where we'll be looking at them on the Mahari Islands. We'll be looking at fin whales, the second largest creature to have ever lived uh, in Ireland. Um, stingrays uh, off, um, the Trilli- off the Mahari Islands as well, which are just the most beautiful animal. And I never even realized myself that they were in Irish waters. Um, so that's we're swimming with those, and then we head out uh, out to um, the Blaskets, and we uh, visit the, the grey seals on on the Great Blasket, which is just spectacular when you see over a thousand grey seals hauled up on the beach there. Um, and then we head out to um, Inishvikilon to see the red deer and the red deer rot. And it was just an amazing thing to see one of the, the you know the magnificent animal that is the red deer, to see them uh, with such an amazing you know background and vista of crashing waves behind them. It really was that was really unique. And then we head down to Garnish Island off uh, off Bantry Bay, and we look at the, the white-tailed sea eagles, which um, again was the largest aerial predator ever to fly in the skies of Ireland uh, since the Ice Age, and um, they've been extinct for the last hundred years. But it, it's a great success story that they've been reintroduced, and now they're breeding breeding on Garnish Island. 
Um, and then we finish off doing a really beautiful um, underwater scene swimming with blue sharks just off the fastnet. And that was really exciting Fantastic. as well. So there's, 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 there's lots of things there to keep an eye out. Yeah. And, and when you look back over the three years, are, are there just too many highlights for you to say, oh, well, they, that was definitely a highlight? Yeah, it's it's very hard because it was, it was so many. And, uh, and it, again, for the small crew that filmed it, there was many other highlights that we had personally that we didn't catch in film that were really special to us that we'll always kind of remember. But I must say, you probably saw that the, at the end of last week's docu- um, documentary, we did uh, we were swimming with uh, basking sharks yeah. off the Clare coast. And there was just hundreds of them. And like, these are immense uh, fish. And to have the opportunity to swim with them was just amazing because I've always wanted to. And I've always been a day too late. Um, and normally you see them in ones and twos. So to get there with, with hundreds of them like that um, and to swim with we, I was with them for three days. Um, and like you'd be in the water for two or three day, three hours a day. And uh, that will stay with me till, till my last day. There's well no done. doubt about that. Well done. Barbara in Abandon says you're Ireland's answer to David Attenborough and wants to know, can we expect, <laughs> can we expect, I, well, I said it earlier, actually, I was teeing up that you were coming on the programme when I was chatting with the breakfast host and said it was the one thing that struck me last Sunday when I was watching the programme. So this is Ireland's answer to David Attenborough. So I'm glad that Barbara Abandon <laughs> agrees with me. Uh, she wants to know, can we expect more TV programmes? Yeah, well, well, we've done quite a few already. Like we did them for TG Carr in the past. If you look back on the player there, like Air Ian, that was a really beautiful one they did back in 2018. And we're, we're obviously planning to do more, um, but there's always a long lead time on these documentaries. Yeah. Um, so even by the time you actually apply for them, get funding and then make them, it could be a few years. But we are making a new one on the Burren this, this summer, um, which uh, will be coming out in TG Carr next year, as far as I know. And hospitality is your background, isn't it? You work in hospitality. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah I went I did hotel management in in college and then uh, I worked in those in hotels and in hospitality for many years. But my since I was a child, my my greatest passion was was being in the outdoors and wildlife. And then yeah, it was funny about about uh, ten years ago, my wife and I we were living in Dublin and um, I had a proper job, a proper career, and we decided <laughs> to move west. And uh, with with the young with two young boys, and um, I kind of left my career and started working for myself. And it was I just gave myself space I suppose and then certain things started coming up and I kind of just put my sail up and went with them and uh, and this is one of them and it's just I, I, I can't believe it actually has happened to tell you the shoot like it just I never I never imagined that this would be um, on my as a career path when I was filling out the CEO form back in the day but um, it's it's amazing how it has happened and I, I'm just so grateful. You have a real gift you really you have well, a real, real gift um, and does the abundance of nature and wildlife you know on our beautiful island and off on the islands off this beautiful country. Does it continue to astound you? What astounds me is you used to use the word abundant. Um, it is because it isn't abundant anymore. That's what astounds me. And it's, it astounds me that it is still surviving, that it's still there despite what we've thrown at it, despite the overfishing, despite the intensive agriculture, despite the amount of habitat that we've taken from them on this mainland Ireland, um, that it still survives and, and it's so resilient. And, you know, it's frustrating at times. And, you know, the reason that we are doing a documentary about the, the islands off the west coast of Ireland is because we've pushed all this wildlife from the mainland. You know, the, 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 the space isn't there between um, one-off housing between towns, between motorways, farming, everything else. It's it's um it's so it's, that's very sad. But I would I would hope that these documentaries would inspire people and 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 give them a sense of pride in what we have. Like what we have is is as as good as anything you'll see in Africa or Antarctica. And you know it's 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 our wildlife, and we should really you know protect it and and just give it the space that it deserves because 
we have every they have every right to be in this place as we have um and when you see it it's just it's just beautiful yeah we can all live in harmony if we can just um, uh just what you know and and people do it's worry a, it's, it's yeah exactly. it's to find the balance yeah it's it's what we're doing for the future generations uh, coming up after us uh, listen the program is just amazing as i say for anyone who hasn't caught the first two uh, episodes they are available on the player and the final one which i'm really looking forward to is next uh, sunday Owen, oh, it was a real pleasure talking to you thank you for that Thanks, Patricia. Thank and thanks you. for joining us. Uh, good morning to you. That is Owen Warner, who is the presenter of um, Ireland's uh, Atlantic Islands final part next Sunday. Make sure you watch. A listener heard me say, what are we at? The 2nd of November said, my neighbour and I put out the May leaves on our window sills on May Eve. This is from Mike in Bantry. Thank you, Mike. Celebrating the month of May. I don't know what the tradition with the May leaves. I know there are various traditions associated with May Eve. There is one to do with the May bush, which is a decorated bush. There's a lot of, it used to happen in rural areas where a bush was decorated with ribbons and, um, you know, cloth streamers and uh, things. I'm not quite sure of what is the tradition with the May leaves that you speak about, uh, Mike, uh, but he said himself and his neighbour decided to keep up the tradition. And there are people, and, and we have done interviews over the years about various traditions around different times of the year, but there certainly was, there are a lot of traditions associated with May Eve and of course one we only spoke about last week or one of the old sayings never cast a clout till May is out because you'll end up getting a really bad cold if you take clothes off during this month. I was talking about May Eve and traditions and do people keep up with some of the old traditions of May Eve? Uh, A listener says we always bless the cattle in the fields with holy water on May Eve and I've often heard of people walking barefoot with the dew on the grass on May morning. There's also another tradition that you're meant to rub the dew on your faces from the May morning. I tried it yesterday and no change I'm afraid. <laughs> Says, well hang in there it might just take some time. Yeah, That certainly was a tradition that I remember as a child you were meant to rush out on the 1st of May and just put your hands into the dew and rub it onto your face and it was meant to be great and there's a lot of traditions associated with May. There's a lot to do with the weather actually uh, as well and it's a time in folklore where people used to when we didn't have met air and predicting what kind of weather we were going to have and many farmers particularly people that I think who farmed the land were brilliant at predicting the weather from various things and see me the month of May is a good time to study the weather Uh, for example a wet May and a dry June that makes the farmer whistle a tune a swarm of bees in May is worth a load of hay now I don't quite know what that is does that indicate that it's going to be warm and a wet and windy May fills the barns with corn and hay. There were some of the old things uh, to do with the month of May. 0818 103 103. And then actually Tim and Barry Rowe sent me this text in, uh, with probably the first text we had in this morning. Same morning, Patricia. Lovely day here in uh, Barry Row, and I just saw my first swallow. We've, we had last week, I think we had a couple of reports of swallow sightings as well, but it reminded me of an interview that I did either last week of the week before with Niall Hatch of uh, Birdwatch Ireland and he was talking about an event that he was doing down in Ballymaloo and uh, we got chatting about birds and I happened to mention that the dawn chorus for the last couple of weeks I've noticed I'm an early riser and to hear the dawn chorus is just truly it just lifts my soul every morning to wake to hear the birds uh, chirping away in the morning and I was often wondering what birds are they and what birds are chirping away in my garden to the dawn chorus because I really wouldn't have 
a clue and he had suggested an app that I could download on my phone and it's a free app and it's the Merlin Bird ID app. So I downloaded it onto my phone as did John Paul and it was only on the 1st of May that I said I'm going to try and record the dawn chorus and see if I can let this app identify what birds are in my neighbourhood and now I'm going to try and play it out. This was on the 1st of May. I got up early. It was at 23 minutes past five. Hope you can hear that. That was me literally just out the window with my phone, staying very quiet, obviously, and recording the dawn course. And then what this app does is it shows up as the different birds are tweeting. It shows up which birds are tweeting. For example, one was the blackbird. Uh, one was the blue tit, the other was the European robin and then there was also a European starling. So I had blackbird, blue tit, robin and starlings all tweeting in my garden. But it is a wonderful, wonderful app and the idea is that if you come across a bird that traditionally shouldn't be in the area, they want you to report it. It's a kind of a scientific study but it's one of those really brilliant free apps and it's Merlin Bird ID and I think well, well worth um, downloading it and you'll have great fun with the children as well but it was just gorgeous to record it and then you can keep the recording as well and it just identifies all of the different birds if you're into bird watching and the sound of birds off you go 0818 103 103 uh, and somebody else is saying don't forget with May the do you remember the May altar I do I certainly remember I went to a Loretto convent school with the nuns and we used to have to bring flowers in uh, for the May altar I don't know if that's a tradition that is still upheld in Catholic schools or not but certainly that was that was a tradition that I certainly had uh, growing up for sure 0818 103 103 we were talking about the council and the people who live in council houses and the government now are hoping that 28,000 people could be homed by allowing council tenants to rent out a room in their home and by allowing council tenants to do it they'll be able to earn uh, €14,000 a year tax free and it won't in any way um, have anything to do with if they're claiming benefits or if they've got a medical card it won't be part of their means uh, testing and they're just trying to the the government will say they're trying to think outside the box they know there are what's called under occupied houses people living in a council house there could be a three or a four bedroomed house family have left and there are empty rooms and they will be more than willing to rent out one of those rooms the way private people who own their own houses have been able to do for the last number of years and do it tax-free so they're now offering the same to council well that has prompted somebody to say hi Patricia I'm paying a big big mortgage and the two tenants on either side of me the council purchased those houses and they've given them out as social uh, housing both houses on either side have 23 one cars so brand new cars and we in the house where we're paying the big mortgage we have two runaround cars it makes my blood boil we have two jobs just to pay our bills. It's a country of everything for nothing as far as I can see. I'm paying property tax and the council tenants are paying nothing. If I had my life over again, I would seriously think about not working. It's the case of the have-nots have everything and we have nothing because we are penalised. Why? Because we go out to work every day. I'm sick of it all. Uh, Patricia says a uh, texture and you can really sense, can't you, the frustration 
in that uh, particular text. And it is hard. It is really hard for people with the cost of living, living and everything is going up. And we know interest rates are going up on uh, mortgages and people, there are people really, really struggling. That squeezed middle that we talk about and hear about so uh, often. 0818 103 103. We are going to be talking about addiction in a little while on the programme with uh, Joe Heffernan and, and kind of it's appropriate for the day for the for for the time at the moment because there's a lot in the papers today about codeine uh, addiction and there's going to be now a review on the availability of going into a chemist and buying over-the-counter codeine uh, products and this review now is urgently required because there is a soaring use of painkillers and there's also the revelation that a middle-aged man recently died from complications that were associated with his apparent codeine overuse. Now it's a man, the, the details that are only available at the moment is a man in his 50s and he died from complications which were associated with the prolonged use of over-the-counter, they were non-prescription codeine-containing products. Now his death will be the focus of a coroner's in- inquest next year and no doubt we'll find out more when that coroner's inquest is uh, released. Now a total ban on over-the-counter sale of codeine-containing products and that was a measure introduced by another of another a number of other countries that's now been considered here that we would have a total ban. You would not be able to just walk into a chemist and say, I'm looking for a codeine-based uh, painkiller. And the Health Products Regulatory Authority, their review on the over-the-counter availability uh, is already well underway. Medical professions have expressed concern over recent years about the increasing trend in people buying large amounts of codeine-containing treatments and they're able to buy it by going into a chemist. An increasing number of pharmacists have had to impose local controls on customers because particularly they notice they'll know their regular customers coming in and if they think somebody is buying an excessive amount they are putting local controls in place. But a lot of those local controls are simply not working because people bypass them and we have seen and there's been TV programmes where people have openly spoken about travelling, you know, many, many miles in order to go to different towns, different suburbs of a city, for example, in order to purchase different uh, codeine products. And anecdotal evidence indicates that Ireland has an increasing number now of people with addiction to over-the-counter pain relief medication. Now, safety controls around the misuse of the common non-prescription medicines containing codeine have lo- has long been established by med- med- medics and patients advocates amid calls that all codeine drugs should be made a prescription only, you know, and we're talking about things like uh, Solpidine and we're talking about things like Nurofen uh, Plus. And I know if you need to go in, Tramadol is another one. Uh, I mean, if you need to get them at the moment, you are quizzed. I mean, I certainly, anytime I've bought uh, Nurofen Plus, which is a drug that or a tablet that I would only ever use for for toothaches I find them particularly good for if I'm having any kind of a dental procedure done but you know when you go into the chemist you're always asked and you know you, you, I always explain the, the reason I want it and it will always come with the caveat you can't take it for longer than uh, three days so I mean in fairness to the chemists they're trying to do the best that they can do but if they have like random strangers coming in looking for it and there's a plausible story as to why they buy it you can understand why they are selling it so should we be going down the route that other countries have already gone down whereby in order to get any kind of what at the moment you can get over the counter 
as I say, with usually a few questions asked by the pharmacist. But it, that would be taken away from the pharmacist completely. And the only way you'll be able to get a prescription for the likes of uh, Tramadol or Salpidine or Nurofen Plus, you'll have to go to your doctor and you'll have to get a prescription. Uh, Jack has already been on about that. And uh, he says that the problem with making it a prescription only drug is the fact that it's going to become more expensive. He said, I've no problem at all with making codeine a prescription drug, but I don't agree that you'd have to go to a GP. Well, if you're agreeing with it being a prescription drug, then you'd have to go to a GP, Jack. But he's making the point that unless you have a medical card, if you're going to the GP, it's going to cost you between 60 and 70 euro just to get a prescription to get uh, painkillers and he thinks that the cost implication of it certainly has to be uh, looked at. So as I say, other countries have gone down this route and now we are seriously looking at it as well because of this. At the moment, anecdotal evidence that there is an increasing number of people uh, addicted to codeine-based over-the-counter products. Your thoughts welcomed on that. 0818 103 103. Uh, John Paul's taking your calls. You can text, you can uh, WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Do you need help with reading, writing, spelling, or numeracy, or do you know of somebody who does need help? If so, please contact the Mallow Adult Learning Centre for more information on 022. 42642. They're located on the top floor of the Parish Centre on Main Street in Mallow and they are open Monday to Thursday from 9.30 to 1.30 and Friday from 9am to 12.30. The High Plains Tradition Band from Colorado in the US of A are playing in concert in St. Sennans Church of Ireland in Inniscarra and that's happening tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And the North Cork Dementia Alliance will hold a brain health information evening. It's on in City Hall in Cork on Monday week, the 15th of May. It's from 7pm to 9pm. And guest speaker will be Dr Sabina Brennan, who's a health psychologist and a neuroscientist. Now, tickets are free, but prior registration is necessary. Call 021 49283711 and the monthly mass in honor of St Peel in St Joseph's Church in Lismire is happening tomorrow night Wednesday 3rd of May 8 o'clock all are welcome Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie and some of your commentary coming into the uh, program Karen obviously was listening to my chat with uh, Sarah who was sharing her IVF journey and I thought one of the the most telling points of her, her, her chat was when people are going through IVF nobody knows it's not something that couples openly share she's now in the very lucky position where she's got two beautiful healthy children uh, God bless her and God bless them and uh, that she's now able to talk about it but you know talking and so therefore you always have to be very careful if you meet a married couple who may be married for a few years and they don't have children this whatever it is about Irish children have you any children yet and you're not trying and you know I don't know why people do that particularly when you don't know what's going on in somebody's life and Karen is uh, picking up on that she was saying that she was at uh, a wedding recently and she was there along with her daughter 
and her son-in-law and she said the number of people that were asking her daughter and her husband have you any children yet and when they said no uh, she said people would, would keep oh you've no children yet have you and you married couple and you married uh, for years Karen is just making the point that people need to be more sensitive and stop asking people that uh, question because nobody knows there could be fertility issues going on and God knows there's a lot of couples uh, facing fertility issues and then of course obviously there are other couples who may decide they don't want children there are other couples who maybe are delaying having children because you know they can't afford to have children it's a whole host of different reasons but I don't know if it's just an Irish thing but it's certainly are you often hear people say when they have one uh, child within a year of them having one are you ready for another one yet when when they love a brother or sister and again you don't know what's going on in that particular what's going on behind closed doors so people just need to be a little bit sensitive and okay if you want to ask someone do you have any children they say no leave it at that don't push as to why you don't have uh, children and thank you Karen I should have mentioned that when I was chatting with uh, Sarah and uh, Teresa in Enniskeen enjoyed my chat with Owen Warner who was talking about that wonderful TV documentary that he's been three years in the making looking at the islands of the west coast of Ireland and he's coming home to Cork for the final episode which will be the best episode of the three series you can guarantee it. Uh, Teresa says you can see Owen's love of animals and his love of nature and you can even hear it in his voice today when he's talking to you Patricia. He certainly is Ireland's answer to David Attenborough. He has a lovely lilt in his voice that very much brings the story alive. Also Teresa says he's lucky he's a married man as he may not be he as it may not be the basking sharks after him, but Manana Heron <laughs> could also be asking him because he's very pleasing on the eye, says our Teresa Nenneskin. Ah, it's a pity Owen has gone off the phone. <laughs> Thank you for that. 0818-103-103 on council housing and council tenants now are going to be encouraged if they have they're under-occupied is the term that's been used by the Department of Housing to consider renting out the room and they can earn up to 14000 a year tax-free. A listener is saying, if there are so many spare bedrooms in council houses, I would recommend that the occupants of the said same council houses move and get downsided and leave that large house and then give that large house to families that need it. Here is where it all goes wrong. Planning is at fault. Selling council houses for near nothing in the 80s was not forward thinking, says this uh, particular texture. Well, the... I don't know where they're getting the their figures from in the de- Department of Housing, but of course they obviously know how many council houses there are. There's 140,000 council houses and that's obviously dotted right around the country. Now, the Department of Housing believes that out of that 140,000 houses, somewhere between 14,000 and 28,000 are what they've deemed under-occupied. Now, I'm, I'm assuming if they go to the Central Statistics Office from the census, they'd have a rough idea of, because we get asked on our census how many bedrooms, um, we get asked how many people are in the house. So maybe they're basing it on those figures. I don't know, but I'm, I'm assuming that's where they could certainly look to. But somewhere between 14,000 and 28,000. But remember, the local authorities can never compel a council tenant to move out or to downsize. 
we have often heard from some of our listeners who would like the idea of downsizing because people who are in a larger family home living on their own will say it can be quite expensive to run, it can be quite expensive to heat. Some people would like a smaller unit, but the smaller unit isn't always available. And remember, if somebody wants to downsize, genuinely wants to downsize, nobody should be forced to downsize and the council certainly won't force anyone to downsize. But when they want to downsize, Somebody want, will want to remain in the area where they have lived and raised their family. They don't want to be, you know, bussed out or moved out many, many miles away. And therein lies the problem for people that do want to downsize and would willingly give the house back to the council so that a family could move in. But they need to have a one bed, bedded property close to where their original house was. 0818103103. Martin was on to say back in 2010, he tried to get a mortgage to buy his council house and his by paying back that mortgage, he would have been paying five euros less a week than what he was paying on rent. When two people are working in the house, they all of the money comes into the income in the house. So he could be paying 200 euro a week in council rent. It goes on the earnings of the household, not on the earnings of the one person you know, on the tenant and the rent book. But I think everybody's name then goes on the rent book, uh, isn't it? Uh, so to hear people saying that people are renting and they don't pay a lot in rent to the council, uh, they do. It's based on the amount of money that is coming in. People seem to be forgetting that. 0818 103 103. And a Kerry listener who actually had been on to us last Friday and I just didn't get around to the comment. This was to do with refugees from Cahar Saivin that were going to be moved and there was huge, huge upset in the uh, area. Uh, but she's back on to us this morning to say, thank God, sense has prevailed. And this was to do with the relocation of 75 Ukrainian refugees. And they were going to be moved out. And then instead, the accommodation that they're currently in was going to be used for asylum uh, seekers. But actually, the Minister for Education, a Kerry woman herself, Norma Foley, got involved in this. Now, community leaders in Kerry County Council and other local politicians had expressed concern. It was the plan to relocate 75 Ukrainian refugees who are in the Karasivin area. They've been based there for many, many months. And the relocations, according to letters that they were received, were to start from today. Now, many Many of the refugees in Karasavine are part of family groups and many of those family groups have children who are attending local schools and have very much settled into their local schools. The majority of them felt at home in the area and they were really, really upset to hear they were going to have to leave. Many of them have made friends either with the other Ukrainians and with people in Karasavine. And the planned relocation of the refu- uh, refugees. Now, we're told that many of them were due to go to Tralee. It caused enormous upset within the local community because it seems the good people of Karasavine had worked really, really hard to help support the Ukrainians when they were fleeing the Russian invasion. And when they came to Karasavine, they really were welcomed and you know they helped them to settle in and obviously friendships have have, uh, developed and it seems some of them are even working in the area as well but now as of I think it broke late yesterday the planned transfer has been paused uh, pending further consultation and that did follow an intervention from the Education Minister uh, Norma Foley. She got onto the the Minister for Integration Roderick uh, O'Gorman 
and uh, she made numerous submissions or she had received numerous uh, submissions from concerned individuals and groups in Kerry. So she got on to Rodrigo Gorman and now this pause has been put on it. And the Department of Integration, it was last month they wrote to all of the U- Ukrainian refugees in Karasavina. It's the ones who are living in the people who go to Karasavine may know it. It's the Skellig Accommodation uh, Centre and there's 75 um, Ukrainians living there and they were told they were moving out and instead uh, 75 asylum seekers would be moving there instead. Uh, accommodation made available as a result of the transfers then will be filled by the asylum uh, seekers. Well it's now hoped that alternative accommodation can be found for the 75 asylum seekers which then would allow the Ukrainian families uh, to remain in uh, Karsavine. And as I say Kerry County Council some of their members very got very involved in this and they expressed concern about the move. One council reported as saying the refugees have settled in Karsavine and they have been very welcomed by the local uh, local people and the Kerry County councillors were querying why these families um, had started to rebuild their lives in a specific part of Ireland, why then they would be suddenly transferred to an entirely different community and they'd have to start all over again. And of course we know up to now we have 70, about 75,000 Ukrainian citizens who've come here fleeing the Russian attack on their country and out of that 75,000 one in three of those are uh, children including the ones that are in Kharsivim and there is also unfortunately fears of a major escalation of the fighting in the east of Ukraine and that is now leading to predictions that uh, many more Ukrainian refugees could end up coming here and we could get to 100,000 by uh, this uh, winter. But there is less people coming. There's a drop in the numbers coming. This isn't now, this isn't uh, Ukrainian refugees. This is to do with asylum seekers. It's the Irish Times are reporting today that the number of people coming and claiming asylum has dropped in recent months. And this is due to figures out from the International Protection uh, Office. There had been a big, big surge in applications last year and that of course obviously has led to unprecedented pressure on uh, services but recent months it seems has seen a fallback. In January more than 1,300 people arrived seeking international protection at level on par with most of all of last year. However when you look at the figures for February and March those numbers are falling back. In February 831 people looked for asylum and in March it was at 850 and some government sources believe the decline in numbers is related to a number of factors. One is to do with an increase in guard the presence to check passengers disembarking from the aircraft and trying to work out straight away who are not genuine refugees. They're also deploying Gardaí to some foreign airports, which I think is the right move before they even get on the plane. Um, and there is continuing pressure on services for asylum seekers. And obviously that word is getting out across other countries as well, that there isn't, you know, a lot of accommodation. We know so many are actually sleeping rough at the moment. And then we had our own teacher, Leo Radker. He was criticised at the time, but he said earlier in the year that Ireland's policy needed to be firm, fair and uh, hard. So it looks like now the trend of recent months that the numbers coming in search of international protection, i.e. asylum, has Uh, peaked and a breakdown of the figures for the first three months of this year show that Algerians and Nigerians 
they are the largest group coming to, the, coming to this country seeking international protection. But it does look like that number has peaked, but it's not. It's still got having huge problems that we just simply don't have enough spaces to house the people coming. OK, and just before we go to Joe, just a couple of people reacting to Karen, who was at the wedding with her daughter and uh, son-in-law and people asking because they're married a few years why they haven't had any children. And people need to be so, so sensitive, particularly with people struggling with fertility issues and nobody knows who's going through that IVF journey which can be a huge roller, roller coaster of emotions. Maura says, hi Patricia, the people asking uh, about people about having um, children and whether, why are they having children? Isn't it really maddening? But you can tell them they're the lucky ones. Wait until the grandchildren start to arrive then it's everything is Nana, Nana, I want this, I want that says uh, Maura. And here's a great WhatsApp in from a listener and this is a great answer. Patricia, the people who are being asked about whether they're having children or not, or have they any children, the response they should give is, no, but we're having great crack trying. (laughs) They won't be asked for the question after that. Thank you uh, for that. But just be mindful and uh, be careful of it. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors or in other people's lives. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Joe Heffernan uh, joining me. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good morning, or good afternoon, Patricia. I, 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 yeah, I tuned in there earlier, and um, yeah, and I was hearing all about the cordine uh, addiction issue and that, and I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, and there is there, there's a huge uh, problem, and I mean, they're looking at. Okay, would you be aware of when people come to you dealing with addictions? Would you have an awareness of a codeine addiction out there in, in amongst the general public? Yes, you would. Yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, as you know, like uh, when I contacted about this week that we were going, we we were going to kind of as it were, um, spread out our talk from just last week with internet addiction to talk about addiction in general, and that would be, yeah, um, um, medications. Um, there was a time there about forty years ago um, when uh, Valium. Um, was uh, well, no, that was under under prescription, but it was being dispensed, and um, uh, there was even an argument among a lot of medics about no, it's not addictive, but it turned out to be very addictive. So, yeah, but the cordine, the the norofen plus, for example, and the salpidine that you mentioned, yeah, when there's a cordine element in it, um, it can become addictive. I read about a guy, um who uh, was taking 96 um, Nurofen Plus a day. 96? Yeah, his tummy erupted and he needed very serious um, um, uh, abdominal um, uh, surgery. Um, yeah, yeah. So I you're not you're that. not surprised to hear that there's a case that's going to be for the coroner's uh, court next year of a 58 year old man who's died from complications associated with prolonged use of non-prescription codeine. I'm, I'm I'm not one bit surprised. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And people will go to any lengths. Like I've heard of people, they'll travel. You know, they you know if they lived in Mallow, they travel into the city. They travel to Fomoy. They travel to Kanturk. They travel to Newmarket and go into all different chemist shops in order to get. I mean, like ninety six a day. You'd want to be buying a lot of. Well, they, this man now um, uh, would have shared that that um, he he was he 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 was on the road. Um, 
I was talking to a person recently and uh, I, I said to them, so you're a, you're a Neurofin Plus uh, tourist. <laughs> um, you know, we were, we were at a level where we could talk like that. Mm. And uh, the person said, yes, indeed, um, you know, into the car. And just like you described there, uh, Mallow, Cork, Cantork, um, uh, Skibbereen, uh, Dublin, uh, wherever. And they get, and because I know when you purchase them in the chemist, I recently had to buy a box because I'm having some dental work uh, done. Mm. And I explained to the chemist, it's the only thing that I find, the Norfan Plus, if I have a toothache or any kind of dental work, it's the only thing because I just can't bear the tooth pain. I don't want, it just goes, it drives me mad. Um, and it's the only thing that works. And, but they were pains to say three days and no more. Oh, yeah, yeah. And quite a long um, explanatory, um, uh, informative uh, uh, information uh, before uh, the the um, the the product is sold. Yeah. So you can understand why other countries have made a prescription only. I can, and I also heard um, what you were saying. The man that uh, texted in about um, you know the cost factor in it being prescription. Um, so, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. There are pros and cons of that. But um, uh, and I think it would uh, it would help chemists in a big way that they, you know, that uh, that would be quite clear if there's a prescription. Um, uh, fine. And if there isn't, um, you know, there's an awful lot of explaining to do. Yeah, because I know some, you know, local controls have been put in place by local pharmacists. You know, if mm. they, you know, if they see Joe Heffernan coming in every second day looking for, you know, a large box of Nurofen Plus, they'll mm. stop selling it to you. But then there's nothing to stop you going on to the next town. And that's why the local controls are being bypassed by the people travelling to other suburbs and towns. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that so, is happening, okay. no doubt. Well, the health... Pr- Products Regulatory Authority are having a review at the moment and it, it, whether it's going to happen that it's going to be put on prescription or not but we will keep uh, keep a look at it. So, yeah. but we want As to... I was saying to you there, like, I mean, that was one of the articles but last Sunday's paper um, I, I was turning the pages, you know, and I was finding, gee, um, some of the things um, I found surprising like growing number of farmers seek treatment for cocaine addiction. Um, gee, I, I kind of, you know, uh, I was especially amazed. Um, uh, Professor Colin O'Gara, um, who often does, uh, he seems to be consulted a lot when, when there's an addiction issue. And, of course, he's an expert on that. And um, uh, the, the thing that I... I I was amazed was that farmers aged in their 50s and 60s. I thought, wow, I, I wouldn't have realized that at all. Um, I kind of associated, um, and I've spoken with many a person who has a cocaine problem. And, um, you know, and I'm glad to say that quite a, quite a few have uh, tackled the addiction and are in recovery now. But um, I, I, the people I would have spoken to uh, dealing with cocaine addiction would all have been of a much younger yeah. um, uh, age profile. 
Yeah, so but you see, many of, me was yeah, but many, many of those in their 50s and 60s, they would have been the generation in the 70s, 80s when cocaine was just coming into this country. So they probably yeah. started back then. Now, how, yeah. how they've continued all of their lives uh, doing it. But it's, yeah. Uh, but, and, but, but like, it's, it's a mood change, isn't it? That, and that's, that's why people need more and more. It changes That's why I mood. wanted to talk this week, which, you know, about, like, the, the addictive personality. Okay. It's all about a mood change. For example, the alcoholic experience is a mood change when uh, drinking alcohol. The food addict experiences a mood change when binging or starving. Uh, the addictive gambler experiences a mood change when placing bets and watching the outcome of the bet. The shoplifter experiences a mood change when stealing from a shop. Uh, the sex addict experiences a mood change when watching pornography or cruising, as we'll say, the red light district or online. Um, the addictive spender experiences a mood change when going on a shopping spree. So it's like a person is looking for the buzz. Or another thing that can happen is that um, people want to be distracted from the troubles or concerns in their life. Um, yeah, but uh, and, and like kind for, of an escape from mm? you know, for most people, you can go out and have a drink. You can place a bet. You can Perfect. have have a nice meal. You can go out and do your shopping and, and all of that. And it doesn't develop into addiction. So what's the difference? What's who's more likely to become addicted to something? Well, that's a very interesting question. And like the uh, a profile that I would have read in my research about things um, on the addictive personality. Um, a person who is impulsive. Um, we talk about impulsivity a lot when we're talking about adult ADHD, attention deficit, um, hyperactive disorder, but um, a person who like acts before thinking, who is impulsive. Um, a person who is usually looking for the buzz. We often used to hear the, the term a thrill seeker or a sensation seeker. A person with that kind of personality, you know, could develop into um, uh, uh, problem drinking or alcoholism, uh, whereas a person who's able to take a drink or leave it would be a different, maybe, mindset. The person, uh, another, another kind of... Um, uh, thing mentioned in that profile, a person might be anti-establishment, anti-authority, doesn't go by the rules. In fact, would um, would would uh, would disregard the rules. Um, again, that would be the impulsive um, uh, uh, type of uh, mindset, which uh, could um, uh, you know make a person more likely to go from what we'll call, for example, using the usual one, from a social drinker to an alcoholic drinker. So um, uh, the person um, uh, might well be a loner rather than a joiner. So 
there are kind of personality traits. traits yeah. yeah. And it's it's to be aware of it. But but from where you're coming from in your uh, world of work, uh, Joe, your message is, you know, you can you can become addicted for whatever reason and whatever is going on in, in, in time in your life. But recovery is possible. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a question or doubt. Um, I was reading there, for example, again, last Sunday's paper, um, uh, the online gambling changed everything. I easily lost five million. Um, uh, it became the heroine of my world. It was a rugby player um, sharing his story about being completely um, wrapped up in an addiction to gambling. Um, but he is very much in recovery and, in fact, is actively uh, out there helping others to recover from uh, addiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, but just... Uh, uh, you know, but we, it's we to have we an awareness. With Tony Ten. We did. We, we yeah, did, but it's to ha- Of course people recover. But it's to, yeah. have, it's to have an awareness that you have a problem. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I will share with you the last time I had an alcoholic drink was 48 years ago. Well done, well done. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Okay. So it can be done. It can It can be done. And actually, there was somebody on earlier and I tracked down the uh, number. Um, where is it? This was from Bernice in the city saying, does Joe have a phone number for the alone office in uh, Cork City? Now, I don't, or an address, I, I do know that alone have an 0818 number. It's kind of a nationwide number and they're open 8am to 8pm uh, for anyone who's having concerns over their own well-being or an older mm. person. Uh, they offer fantastic befriending uh, services and I do know that they run, they do great work here in Cork. So it's 0818 0-2-4, seven days a week from 8am to 8pm and I'm glad to pass that on to um, uh, Bernice who was looking for the number OK I've got to leave it there listen Joe thank you for that and have a, have a lovely week and we'll chat to you next Tuesday Absolutely, Patricia. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. That is uh, the wonderful Joe Heffernan, uh, who runs a counselling practice in Boherbury. And uh, Joe's number is 086-834-8145. And just let me quickly check up on lots of people actually still reacting to my chat with Owen Warner when we were talking about that documentary series where he's looking at the islands off the west coast of uh, Ireland. And Pat says Patricia having watched the first two episodes and very much looking forward to the final one next Sunday is it any wonder the English wanted to hold on to Ireland it is such a beautiful country and that's the one thing I have to say that stands out for me when I was watching the last two episodes and really looking forward to the final one coming down into uh, Cork next week it's the one thing you, you kind of sit there going God isn't it is such a beautiful beautiful country and those wild islands off the West Cork are truly truly stunning Okay that's where I leave you for today Nick Richards is back. Glad to report. John Paul, uh, thanks for producing. We'll talk tomorrow at 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow. Looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools. Piece of cake. And let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing. 
Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Switch to Shopify today for a $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.